John writing to us in his first epistle, Epistle of St. John, by inspiration of God, the Apostle writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be God for his unspeakable gift, the word made flesh, and his word written unto us. The apostle tells the churches at Galatia that when the fullness of time had come, God, according to his perfect timetable, according to his perfect ordination and providence, he brings forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those that were under the law, that we, the saints of God, the saints who were elect before the foundation of the world, that we might receive what the Apostle calls the adoption of sons. And so on that glorious night, while the shepherds were watching their flocks, God reveals, not only to them, but to us as well, His Word made flesh. And this was the fulfillment of the promise that God declared to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, where he said that the seed of the woman would finally bruise, once and for all, be victorious over the serpent by crushing its head. And so, according to his timetable, a virgin conceives and the word is made flesh. Finally dwelling among the children of men as man, while at the same time dwelling with men as God contemplating the mystery of godliness, the fourth ecumenical council of the Christian church held in Chalcedon, which is today's modern Turkey, in 451, called together by the Emperor Marcion and attended by almost 520 bishops, which was an incredible meeting because of all the people that were concerned about who this word made flesh was. 520 bishops detailing exactly what the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ really meant. And it was the largest documented meeting of the early church which showed just how important this issue was since it would settle the deity of Christ for the entire realm of Christendom. The council stated that the two natures of Christ were without mixture, unchangeable, indivisible, in other words, without division, and inseparable. In other words, he was, very simply put, he was fully God, and at the same very minute that he was fully God, in the time that he was made flesh, he was also fully man. Fully God and fully man. Not 50%, not 50%, but 100%, 100%. God and man. And this is why the Apostle John says, And the Word was made flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. He tabernacled with men. But, but what exactly did he mean by that? What does it mean that the Son of God, the second person of the triune deity, tabernacled with men as a man and at the same time as God? Well, generally speaking, it means that the Son of God came to commune with men. And this means that Christ dwells not only among men, 
while he was present in the days of his flesh upon the earth, he dwelt among men. But as he now tabernacles in men by his spirit after his ascension through the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So not only did he dwell with men while he sojourned on the earth, but now in the person of the Holy Spirit, he tabernacles in men. And John understood this when he penned in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now in this verse, the idea that the tabernacle of God is Jesus is clearly plain to see. What is not as evident here, however, is that when John says that the tabernacle of God is with men, he's actually stating that the Lord is with men in the most intimate fashion. He's not just with us. He's with us in extreme intimacy. And this is made clear in the etymology of the word tabernacle. The word that John uses in John 1.14 when it says, and the word dwelt among us, the word is actually tabernacled. But the etymology of the word, the meaning of the word, the word used for tabernacle has as its literal meaning to be inhabiting. So the word was inhabiting us. John in both his gospel and in his revelation is saying that Jesus is now inhabiting his elect by his justifying work and by his sanctifying spirit. But in order to show that this habitation is a holy habitation, the translators desired to use the word tabernacle. He's tabernacling. It's, it's giving us a holy reverence, not just he's inhabiting us, but he's tabernacling. He's indwelling. He's inhabiting. This is fleshed out in Psalm 132. When the psalmist understanding what this habitation means, speaks of Zion, referring to the people of God, for the people of God are often likened to Zion, which means a parched place. We are a parched people. Without the word of God, we are parched. But as the living water, he is giving us the water so that we're no longer parched. We're no longer really Zion. We are now the city of peace. We are the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. But the psalmist says in Psalm 132, speaking of Zion, referring to the church, he says in verse 13, For the Lord, Yahweh, hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it. The triune God, Yahweh himself, has desired it for his habitation. So the psalmist is telling us that he desires us to inhabit us. The entire church of Jesus Christ is his habitation. It is the organic, eternal church that God inhabits. Now Paul too, Paul understood this fully. And so he writes to the church at Ephesus. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and following. Now therefore, ye, you saints of God, you, those who are saved by his grace, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So already he's giving us the imagery of a building, of a tabernacle, of a temple, of a city. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, notice this phrase, for a habitation of God through the Spirit. 
for a habitation of God. We are God's habitation. Through the Spirit. Now the idea of a holy habitation by God, it speaks of a divine union and a divine communion with the Father in behalf of the Son by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So our communion with God is the communion with God the Father, the God the Son, and God the Spirit. God was acutely aware of His communion with God the Son, who is the mediation, that vehicle to union and communion with the Father. Notice His explanation in His first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. He tabernacled among us, in other words. And we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship, notice, our fellowship, our communion, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John assures the believer that their fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This Greek word here used by the Apostle John for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which signifies a social intercourse of the closest dynamic. It is not just some casual intercourse. It's not just some casual fellowship. It's of the most intimate fashion. Paul adds to this by assuring the saint that his communion, his communion fellowship is also with the Spirit making the believers intimate communion with all three persons of the Trinity. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion, the koinonia of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. So what the apostles are telling us is that we have communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is not just something to, to wink at. This is not something that is just, just a casual thing. It's an incomprehensible reality. And it's more of an incomprehensible reality in light of the fall of man. As a result of the fall, think about what happens. When Adam fell, communion was lost. Communion was broken. There was no communion with God. There was no communion with the Father. There was no communion with the Son. And there couldn't be any communion with the Spirit. Man, without the intervention of God, cannot have communion with the Godhead whatsoever. Without that being born again, without that intervention of God, without that new birth, man cannot have true communion with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. So without this intervention... Man has no communion with the Godhead whatsoever. Man is rather called both an enemy and an adversary of God. And at the same time, remaining at enmity, opposite of God. That's the nature of man without communion of God. The great Puritan preacher John Owen explains it this way. Notice what he says. By nature, since the entrance of sin, no man hath any communion with God. He is light, we darkness. And what communion hath light with darkness? He is life, we dead. He is love, we enmity. And what agreement can there be between us? End quote. So as a result of mankind being lost to sin and in sin, he lost all interest 
in God. The broken communion, because of Adam's fall, made man lack any interest in God whatsoever. The only reason why we have any interest in God is because God is working in us. He's tabernacling in us in order to bring us to this intimate communion with Him. So as a result of the fall, mankind is lost to sin and in sin. He cannot want God. He has no interest in God. And in such a condition, man is hopelessly lost without some divine intervention. Notice what John Owen says again. He says, Two cannot walk together unless they be agreed. Whilst there is this distance between God and man, there is no walking together with Him in any fellowship or communion. Our first interest in God was so lost by sin as that there was left unto ourselves, in on ourselves, no possibility of recovery. Because of our fallenness, there was no possibility, as it would, of course, be anything that we could do, in ourselves there was no possibility of any recovery whatsoever. There had to be an intervention. And so, in the darkness of night, While the shepherds were watching over their flocks, the light of God's redemption shone unto them, establishing what no man could accomplish. And what it accomplished here was not only salvation. Salvation was the beginning point. Salvation was the intervention of God. But it brought about something even greater. And this is what we must grasp if we are to fully be comforted. Notice what the Apostle John says. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So when we sing joy to the world, are we just singing joy to the world that the Savior has come to take us away from our sin, to purge us from our sin, or because we have a fellowship, a connection, a unification with God, union and communion with the Father, the Son and the Spirit through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the Incarnation. So let's consider for a moment the Incarnation as the saint's entrance into intimate communion with God through the Son. As a result of the Incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saints can enjoy communion with the triune God. And this is the intention of John's first epistle. John intends to make perfectly clear that the believer does not enjoy union and communion with the Son only, but also with the Father and with the Spirit. And this Trinitarian communion is enjoyed distinctly with each person of the Godhead and it is complete and perfected in Jesus Christ. Further intention of the redemption of God's people was so that they would have fellowship first with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as a result, fellowship with one another. But that fellowship is not just, hi, how are you, how's your day going, I'll see you later. That is not the fellowship that John is talking about with the saints. He's talking about a true, honest Fellowship, a communion of those of the body of Christ caring for one another and serving one another selflessly. Because if we have such a union with Christ, if we have truly a fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, then we will seek to not only cultivate that communion, but we will seek to cultivate this communion. 
a communion among the people of God. Not only in the local church, but throughout Christendom. John records this idea in John 17 in Christ's priestly prayer to the Father. Speaking of the elect, Christ is praying that the saints may be one with each other in a unified fashion, in communion with one another in the same way that the Father and the Son are one with each other. And to put it another way, the union and communion that the Godhead enjoys within itself, and you think about that perfect communion that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had within the Godhead before ever the world was created. It was a perfect fellowship. It was a perfect love. It was perfect harmony and peace. That's the kind of fellowship that God wants among His people. So this union and communion that the Godhead enjoys within itself is what the saints ought to enjoy with one another. Notice John recording the Lord's priestly prayer in John 17. Notice what he says in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. In communion, in other words, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Note how Paul expresses how the people of God are actually unified into one body with one another while at the same time in complete union with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and following. For as the body is one, in other words, the intention here is as the body is in communion with one another, as the body is unified with one another, stone upon stone, building that glorious holy tabernacle, as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into that one Spirit. Notice the oneness, the unity. So if we claim to be Christian, and we don't seek to cultivate unity, then the question is, are we Christian? Do we have fellowship with the Father? Do we have fellowship with the Son? Do we have fellowship with the Spirit? If we are not seeking to have fellowship with one another. And so, when the angel of the Lord revealed this good news to the shepherds, he was declaring much more than the redemptive message of justification by faith alone. He was telling them that the darkness had passed, death would be defeated, enmity would be overturned, and divine communion reestablished with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And this message was to be a revelation to the world. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men through that unification. So this message was to be a revelation to the world that Christ is the foundation of the believer's communion with God and by the Spirit believers receive a boldness of faith. Think about that. Because of that communion, we have now this, what is called the boldness of faith, the message of salvation, would now establish such a union with God so that the saints might have a direct line of communication with the Father through the Son as they are encouraged by the Spirit to come boldly before the throne of God, the God of glory, in supplication, praise, and thanksgiving. And as the Apostle says, we are to come boldly before the throne of God, making our request known to God. Why? How? Through that union. Through that communion. This was a message whereby the broken covenant with the triune God shattered by the rebellion of Adam would now be reestablished by the blood of Christ. 
And in the same way as the Son delighted in the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit before His incarnation, we must delight in our fellowship with the Father and with the Son while we delight in our fellowship one with another. The incarnation was a pure act of eternal love given by the Father. And John wants us to be sure of of this when he writes in John 3.16. You think about John 3.16. It's quoted so promiscuously all over the place. But what does it really mean? What is John trying to tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. In order to establish a relationship, a communion, a union, John 16, 27. For the Father, consider this. Notice, for the Father himself loveth you. We keep thinking that, well, well, Jesus loves us and only the reason why God the Father loves us is because God the Father loves Jesus and through Jesus he loves us. No, 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 no. No. For the Father himself loves you because he hath loved me, says Jesus, and have believed that I came out from God. Direct love of the Father. Yes, because of the Son, but direct love of the Father. 1 John 4.10 Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He, the Father, loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A direct love of the Father so that we might have communion with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, through the Son and by the encouragement of the Spirit. These verses testify of the Father's direct and specific love for the organic church, the elect of God. It is direct and purposeful as a result of Christ's sacrifice and it is meant to be used as both a comforting reality and a joyful expletive. We are to praise God for this. And we as the sons of God are to be encouraged by this union, by this communion to commit our lives to the work of the kingdom. One thing we can be certain of concerning these shepherds is that the message of the gospel, when they received the message of the gospel, it immediately changed their lives. The revelation of the incarnation of the Son of God and the message behind it became embodied in everything they thought and did. For upon hearing the tidings of great joy, Notice, of great joy, so that their joy might be full because of the fellowship with the Father, the fellowship of the Son and the Spirit. The tidings of great joy. They hurried to tell others that the King had come. Surely the curse had been broken. Communion between God and man renewed so that now the government could be upon his shoulders. So what I want you to take away from this lecture this evening is that we have an intimacy with God, the triune God. We are in union with Him. We must cultivate communion with Him so that we might have our joy filled. Surely the curse has been broken. And because of it, the government could be upon His shoulders and He could finally one day, provided His church would would come to the call of unity to bring peace on earth instead of disunity and hatred and schism. Because of that work of the Christ and because the government is upon his shoulders, we can see 
that there will be one day peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, had come to prove the nations and bring them into subjection to his leadership and his lordship majesty so that one day we might be one, even as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And so, beloved, as we seek to bring the knowledge of Christ, the sovereign King, to the world, let us never forget that the Father loves us and has given us the blessing of union and communion with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, as we labor to bring the nations to their knees before the King of nations by the empowering of His Holy Spirit. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.